Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. This week, help me welcome my special guest, Steve Todd from NASDAQ. Steve is also the founder of Open Source Workplace, a community for business owners and workplace professionals seeking to share knowledge, insights, and experience about work. Welcome, Steve. Uh, very excited to have you on our podcast this week. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first, many thanks for having me on, Sandra. I appreciate you, the invitation, the opportunity to chat with you. Um, so, yeah, so my name is Steve Todd. I'm Global Head of Workplace at NASDAQ. Um, by way of background, I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I, I spent some time in the UK before moving to the US. My background is all finance, as I said, where I was moved to NASDAQ, I think, 2011, so a little over 11 years ago, as a BU CFO responsible for um, basically managing various businesses. I got an appetite for real estate, though, because that's one of the areas we looked at and managed. And um, in 2015, I got the opportunity to move into real estate. 2016, I led a work, workplace strategy project within the organization. That changed my whole perspective, my trajectory, and where I wanted to spend my time and energy. Listening and hearing and responding to employees' needs was something that just drew me in. And I know many people in our, our, our industry feel the same way, right? The ability to help people and serve other people is what really dragged me and pulled me into this workplace space. And just really understand what is it that employees need to be their best? What is it that on day one, when they go into an organization, they have all this energy? And yet over time, sometimes, most of the time, that energy gets eroded. So how do we sort of reinvigorate that? And and that's sort of where my passion grew for workplace. Um, I also manage the leasing aspect of NASDAQ, so I'm responsible for the portfolio. And really what that means whenever you connect the portfolio to the workplace design and the data is really understanding, okay, so what is the business that operates in each office? What do the people do? What do they actually do there fundamentally? What are their tasks? And then how do you then design for those tasks for people to be successful? And knitting all those together is is the bit that I really, really love. So that's a little bit about me. Outside of work, I uh, I, I love my soccer. I'm a big Manchester United fan for my sins, um, which has been really bad at the moment. So, But that's just how it goes. But uh, I love cycling. I love running. I love traveling. And I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on that through the conversation. But, uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. It's great. It's amazing. So uh, you've been with NASDAQ for a long time. Were you actually there when we had the uh, market crash back in 2008-2009? I was not. I started in 2011. Okay. At, at that time, I actually was working for the Associated Press. So that's when the whole media industry went. And uh, that was that was a tough time for, for the media industry and especially the Associated Press. At the time, it was uh, it, it was a tough time. Yeah. OK, but still, I mean, even being in the in the industry, having that focus on real estate for 11 years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. Would you say that it's cyclical or are we seeing something now that we've never seen before? That's a question I ask myself. It's a great question. because I, I continually ask myself and I, I talk to my peers. I speak to my brokers 
Uh, brokers are forever optimists unless you're selling. And if you're mm-hmm. selling stuff, oh, it's a terrible market. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I do find it, it is very cyclical. I also look at this as a pendulum, right? There's times when the landlord have the power. There's times when the tenants have the power. At this moment in time, I think tenants have the power. That said, that's diminished power, right? I think it's almost at this time where both parties are kind of suffering. Unless you're going to, and you're buying real estate, um, only then do you have the ability to sort of drive good deals at the moment. The challenge is, who knows what the real estate needs are for organizations at this time, given how we look at the future of work, how people are going to return to the office. So it's a challenge, I says, on both sides. And I almost think that it's a, it's a partnership at the moment, right? It's, it's basically working with your landlords to really understand what are the needs for both sides so it is an equitable arrangement. Um, I have a lot of friends who operate and run real estate companies, and uh, you know we often talk about these things and these times and actually how both parties benefit whenever actually it is mutually looking after and striving for the same things. Mm-hmm. And uh, people people don't have short memories, and uh, we 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 have to ensure what we do is collectively is is we do the right thing. But I I think it's it is a pendulum, and I think at the moment the tenants have probably more influence than landlords at the moment. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think the other the other part um, maybe that's a little different is is that, and I've seen it also in just some of the conversations with people in our industry around how we think of the customer. So you know, if you think of the landlord, obviously the tenant is their customer. Um, but the one piece that I think that's never really been truly considered is the people in all of this is you're either, you know, the uh, owner operator of a building or you're the tenant occupier of a building, but the tenant occupier has very little power when there's no demand and the demand comes from the customer, which is ultimately the employee, right? So I think that's something that we haven't seen before where the power is kind of shifted completely over to the people with respect to, yeah, companies are mandating people to come back to the office, you know, two, three days a week, but people have, you know, different plans. They're not complying to these demands or to these mandates. And therefore, what is the tenant to do? What is the landlord to do? You can't really control what people are ultimately going to do. And we've seen that with the, the attempted mandates and how people are actually responding. Um, so is that kind of been the same, same experience? I mean, yeah, and I just, I just want to touch on that because I think it's, it's a really important insight you sort of shared there. And w- what I've sort of learned from the smart landlords is, one, they're working with their tenants. Two, they're putting improved infrastructure into their buildings. And infrastructure, I don't mean to for air quality. What I mean is amenities into their buildings. Also providing, taking that excess space and creating flexible space for their tenants. So what they're trying to do is almost create a package that actually you look beyond the building is just I'm renting from a landlord. You're actually looking at a holistic approach to what is, to your point, useful for employees that provides their tenants with flexibility. So if things don't quite work out the way things are planned and maybe there's excess space or there's not enough space, there is that flexibility within within the buildings. And I think that's what the really smart landlords are doing at the moment. Yeah, I, I've heard that as well. So actually that raises an interesting, um, uh, an interesting sort of angle to sort of the discussions that are at play these days. When we think about, um, you know, these attempts of landlords to try to work with the tenants to create the flexibility, who's 
paying for the furniture, fixturing and equipment in those scenarios? Is that the tenant or is that the landlord? It's it's again, it's another interesting question. Right. So so at NASDAQ, we like to be the ones that own the relationship with whatever we're buying. So that's just how we like to operate. Right. That's just the way we run. That's the way our own internal processes are run. And and that's just the way we do it. That said, I, I know other companies that are actually putting that on the landlord at the moment, right? The landlord, again, the smart landlords are actually creating these suites that are already purpose built. So if tenants need to be a move, need to move quickly, and uh, then there are already suites already built out. And we've been in a position where we've been able to benefit from that from a couple of our landlords. So therefore we are basically, it's a really low cost way, if in a way you think to transition to a new space. And again, so this is where the landlord's investing in their space, creating these flexible units that if a tenant wants to move into in a longer term or a short term lease, then it is available to them. But as as I said, from a NASDAQ perspective, we like to own the relationship, be it with a a construction company, be it with a furniture furniture manufacturer, Mm -hmm. we want to own that relationship. Right. So in the case where you're, you're, let's say you're doing that, where you're creating these types of spaces, um, are is NASDAQ also looking to share some of those spaces? So if you're creating efficiencies by reducing the amount of space or kind of consolidating the space for the employees, so that would be sort of the exclusive employee space, if you will. Is there a portion of your portfolio that you're opening up to other organizations to use or is still exclusively NASDAQ space? Yeah, it is, it is going to be. I mean, we, we have a there will be areas that we may partition off and sublease to third parties, but they wouldn't have access to NASDAQ space. Obviously, given the type of company we are, SEC right. guidelines, et cetera, et cetera, right? There are certain things that we have to protect, and therefore we wouldn't really allow other companies to come in and work in our space with our employees. Given, I see. Okay. Rules and regulations. Okay. And then the other question, given your, your CFO background, because I get asked mm. this question a lot, is – what happens or what would you suggest a company do where you have a long-term lease? So you're committed to a lease and there's very little demand for space right now, but your your hands are tied because you can't really get out of the lease. What does a company do in that situation? It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a good question. It's a tough question. And ultimately, it all comes down to what your landlord's position is, right? There are many landlords out there. And again, it all depends on when you signed your lease. So if you signed a lease in San Francisco a couple of years ago, then you're really going to struggle to find a landlord who's prepared to work with you. It's going to be a tough time to also sublease space in San Francisco, given where the current rates are. So I think it is going to be really, really, really tough to um, to offload space, the, the, the demand for sublease space, unless unless you have created a a workplace that is almost best in class. And what I seen best in class is, so prospective subtenant looks at the space and at this moment knows they can simply move in and work, that's going to be attractive. If you've got a, a, sub, a space that you built out 10 years ago and you're still under, under the conditions of a longer term lease, it's going to be, it is going to be a challenge. Cause I, I know, cause I've taken advantage of those situations as well, where we've looked at a space it's been beautifully built out. It looks like a NASDAQ space. And we went with subleased it. And the app and sort of the the appeal of that is all I have to do is run in my infrastructure, my technical infrastructure, connect the services and we're good to go. We're up and running. And, 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 and that's what's attractive. And, and those are going to be those are going to be this types of subleases that I've been prepared to pay for. 
other ones where I have to invest in space is really I'm not an appetite. So I think that's sort of the approach and, and, and I think it's going to be a tough, it's going to be tough. There, there's going to be real estate that is going to be, that is going to come to the market and whether that comes to the market in, in six months or 12 months, I do believe there's going to be an avalanche of space that is going to come to the market, to the sublease market. And, and I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a larger cities. I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a tough time ahead. Yeah, I, I, I have the same, same feeling. It's interesting because, um, it almost feels like we're in limbo right now. <laughs> and to some extent, it also feels like companies are hopeful, maybe, or they believe that something is going to change and that there is going to be this return to the office is that, you know, the dates keep getting pushed, like, you know, started out, you know, before Christmas or last year, there was, you know, every three or six months, it was like, okay, something would happen. And then we push the date out another whatever number of weeks or months. And here we are now, it's almost June. And we're still doing that. Like, you know, we can't say that the pandemic is over, we've just have adopted and have learned to live with it and all the implications that are still part of day-to-day living. Um, but, you know, the data is showing very clearly, uh, although even if it's just for the last three months where there's some, ex- there was some expectation for return that we were going to see greater numbers, uh, and we're not seeing that. Like in, in our world, you know, we obviously are inside organizations. We're tracking uh, occupancy, utilization, dwell time, churn at the seat level. We can observe badging data. We look at booking data. So we, even if we're not looking at people actually physically in the office, what is the intent? We rarely see organizations that are exceeding 30%. Like that's kind of seems to be the norm. And that has been the case since January. Like there's been sort of a little, a couple of dips here and there, but generally speaking, it's around that 30, 35% mark. Um, I think the key is there certainly was an uptake between February, well, maybe February, March till now. Like there's been a, a significant increase, but you know, considering we were at maybe 5%, 10% before January, the fact that we're still at 30, 35% in comparison to where we were before, uh, there's still a, a ways to go. And so there's this feeling that, you know, when you talk to people that they're hesitant about giving up space because, well, what if people do come back? What if things change? And what if we have a need for space? Then getting space is going to be more difficult because, Things might change. And so you just kind of hold and sort of deal with the situation. Um, but it's, 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 I just find it really fascinating that, you know, there's this hesitation on making a change. Some say, and I agree that, you know, it's too early to make significant decisions right now. Like it's more of a learning opportunity just to sort of look at your data, explore, you know, what your people want, sort of all of that stuff and really understand where or how space will fit into your organization and how you want space to fit into your organization. But you have to balance that with like what we were saying before, where it's no longer about what the leadership wants because the people are behaving in a completely different way than what leadership wants. And so I think all of those factors play into 
the role of space going forward. And even as we talk about um, repurposing of space, like I've heard this comment many, many times, actually just this morning, I posted something on LinkedIn about, you know, this need to repurpose space to meet new demand. What's the demand? (laughs) Right. It's struggling with quantifying what is that demand for space? Right. Yeah. And and if we take your last question, we take what you've just said and you bring those two together. Right. Um, It's a really interesting dynamic that people have to solve for. First, I don't know why people are surprised it's only 30 percent when whenever it was in the office, supposed to be in the office five days a week, we were averaging what, 60, 65 percent. So you cut that in half. That actually means there is compliance consistent with where we were before. So with that, so what do you do if you've got this long-term lease and this is what you're looking for? Or there is an opportunity where you have a lease renewal coming up and you, to your point, organizations are a little scared to, to sort of cut their, their, their real estate and in, in this off chance that people do come back later. Mm-hmm. And I think where you, obviously the approach to dispose of, while it's difficult, um, and many organizations, many landlords are not taking the opportunity to take short-term contractions or terminations or early terminations because there isn't a market to take up that space. Where you have renewals and you have this, this is where you can build in optionality. Optionality with, you know, whether it's a short-term renewal, um, whether it's the ability to build in contraction rights within a lease renewal to take advantage of the current market rates. There are many ways which you can take advantage of that. That builds the flexibility that gives leadership assurances that actually we're building for the upside, but we're also protecting ourselves from the downside, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's, where, that's where I think leadership like to be, in a sense, if they're not ready to make a, com- a commitment one way or the other. And then from the, from the, you know, what you're talking about, the data, that's absolutely what I'm seeing. What I'm also seeing though as well is, and I'm sure you are, is the fluctuations day to day. Lack of consistency is what really makes it a challenge to manage and plan ahead. Now, what, we, what I've seen also within the organization is across the globe is different compliance under different structures in different cultures. Real example is, you know, at our biggest office is in Sweden. And the Swedes are fantastic at following instructions. They will challenge, they will push back, and they will debate to the end why something is the way it is. And then everyone agrees and everyone follows. So there we have basically teams coming in two days a week. And if you look over the course of each week, it's consistent, the compliance. And really what we're seeing is there's 80% compliance, 80% utilization of that population is coming to the office for the two days four days a week. Other locations where perhaps there isn't the same compliance, different cultures where basically nothing's said. I'm talking about us British folks and how we like to be. We just like to listen, go, okay, nod our heads, go, sounds good. And, and then we don't go in, right? We don't comply and we see that. And you see that basically utilization going up and down. And, and that's what's a headache, I think, for leadership. It's it's a headache what's, you know, for, for folks who are my peers who are trying to manage these things and how do you plan for this when there is these huge fluctuations? Um, and it's tough and, and real estate, you know, as we look at the, the economy at the moment, we look at how much real estate costs for organizations. As we start to move into the economy, we sort of think about, okay, well, what does the next 12 to 18, 24 months look like for in the economy? And we have this huge asset, costs a lot of money, a lot of cash being drained, and actually, what's the ROI on that asset for the organization? And is there an opportunity, given even though what we had talked about in the last question, but actually, how do we free up that cash flow or how do we free up that asset 
to fund other things so the business doesn't get hurt from investment in innovation and development. So, you know, to, to, so how do we, how does the leadership team manage those things as well? And I think that's something we have to sort of think about too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's really interesting. I think the inconsistency in behavior is definitely the new problem. We're certainly seeing it in our data, you know, since the onset of the pandemic, the, you know, few false starts, you know, people start to come back, it starts to look positive and then you're expecting it to continue to climb and then it tanks and then you're like, huh, why did that happen? And then it starts again and then another, you know, sort of tank. So you have this zigzag pattern in your, uh, in your data. I think from a planning perspective, the traditional mindset of how you look at the data, I think has to change as well. Like again, just thinking about, I was talking to someone on my team this morning about, you know, the occupancy metric, right? The, everybody loves the occupancy metric. It's like it tells you so many different things, like what percentage, depending on what source you're using is, you know, if you're using badging data, for example, it gives you an idea of roughly how many people are in your building or on your floor if, if you have floor level badging. If you're using uh, uh, booking data, again, you're getting intended, intentional data. It doesn't mean that people are actually in the office, but at least you get a sense of roughly how many people you're expecting to come in. If you're looking at, you know, sensor data or people counter data of some kind, you know, depending on what you're measuring, it could be, you know, uh, how many bums and seats, right? I mean, you can get right down to that level. And, you know, occupancy data from a percentage point of view or from a count point of view is sort of more of the traditional uh, way of looking at things. Then you sort of move towards more of a Everybody's mandating certain number of days in. Well, guess what? Your occupancy data can be converted into a what is your actual number of days of of use of space? Again, whether it's at the building level or at the space level or even what the sharing ratio might be based on how your space is performing today and sort of trending it that way versus just using percentages. Right. Um, but there's other things as well in, in, in the sense of. Um, you know, other metrics like, you know, um, I think you were saying when before we press record about just kind of understanding people. So like the commute, right, it's kind of like when you just look at the data within the four walls of your office, you can only go so far. And what we found at Relogix is the value of blending these various data sources together to say to try to understand what's the correlation between someone's commute. And how often they use office space. Well, that suddenly opens up a whole new door because you start to see patterns, right? Is that, and as much as people say, well, you don't want to create, you know, um, personas based on uh, age or tenure or, you know, job functions or whatever, which is true. But when you look at it sort of at a more general level, you definitely see patterns. So where people live, for example, is a prime, a prime example of you know, if you live close to the office, you tend to use the office more than if you live in the suburbs. You don't come in as often. That's common across all organizations when you look at their data that way, and especially now with the impact of COVID. I mean, that was true before, but it's become even more visible now across most organizations. And so um, it's really interesting when you start to look at all of these complementary data sources and kind of the bridge between corporate real estate planning and workforce planning, because workforce planning is very much part of all of that. Are you guys seeing that at NASDAQ as well? How much do you work with like your your people analytics or your HR team? 
Not as much as I'd love to. And that's not because they're not open to it. They certainly are. It's more of bringing the two systems together to be able to talk to each other. And, right. and I love, I love where you're going and, and that thread because the other question that goes through my head, just taking what you, you just said, right? The workforce planning and, and commute to the office and what that looks like. I'd be curious to know is that commute time, how does that then transfer into turnover within the organization? Yes. So with an individual who makes a decision, to move out of the city where they're actually able to go and attend an office and be in the office, how does that impact their actual longevity of an organization? How does that impact their growth within the organization? How does that impact, you know, the connection they have within the organization? These are things that, you know, I don't, I don't know if you have the ability to pull all this data, to understand all this data at the moment, and I'd be fascinated to hear more if you do, because I think these are really important things that organizations will understand, but I also think employees individuals should know this you know it, you know I, I know we talked about it before I, when i lived in the city i was in the office five days a week the thought of working from home is like no way i move we're on a 90 minute commute the thought of getting into the office five days a week i was like no way that's too much for my own self my own energy levels my own performance it just i just couldn't do it so these are different things that i think we're going to learn in time um i i'm not in a position to to sort of be able to calculate that at the moment, but it's absolutely something I'm fascinated by. And really is if, if you're able to take all that and that you're able to bring in, you know, Salesforce data, how does that impact sales? How does it impact the amount of calls that people make? You know, there is this view that if all the salespeople are together in a room, they actually make more calls. Is that anecdotal or is that real evidence? Yeah. I just don't know. I know BCD did a study on, on, um, call centers and they actually find that whenever people were given the breaks together actually the team performance went up because when they were on the breaks they all talked about their last call so they're all learning from each other just fascinating study they did i think it was like 2017 2018 something like that they did it and i'm just curious from a sales perspective if the same thing happens if the office or if, if they're not and I, I just don't know i don't know if you have access to any of that information or insights on that yeah, not Salesforce stuff, but I personally have done projects in the past to correlate people analytics type data. And again, you're sort of at the mercy of what HR is willing to share with you because there's highly confidential information. But the thinking was always along the same lines. I mean, there was theories, for example, that uh, people who whose managers were located in the same the same geographic area, the same city, uh, were more productive than the people whose managers were located elsewhere. Well, guess what? That's not really true. And so these theories start to evolve because it's what people think or believe. But when you actually look at the data and you try to support that to say, well, okay, we know what the annual sort of, you know, review score is. We know where the manager is located because you can pull that from HRIS and you have occupancy data that tells you whether the manager and the person are in the office at the same time, you can piece those together and very quickly start to prove that, well, no, that's not really true. And so it kind of changes the whole approach to how you think about space and how you think about the the need for space, more particularly when you start to understand the team environment, but you understand the attributes of people that are really at the heart of the team, right? I mean, we hear the same thing, for example, around collaboration. I mean, you probably heard it time and time again as well around the value of collaboration and face-to-face and all of that stuff. And, you know, when you look at generational differences, 
you know, it's it's not even so much the generational difference. It's just the technology that's evolving, that we have technology now at our disposal that doesn't matter if you and I are talking this way or in a room talking together. I mean, we're still getting value from it, right? It, it's kind of like, so why discount one over the other just because it's something different from what, you know, our predecessors were used to, and that was the only way that they actually worked? It's it's fascinating. There's two things I sort of pull out of that. Um, one is I, I often ask myself, can the physical workplace compete with the digital workplace? And and I, I sort of I can't find an answer where the physical workplace can. The digital workplace can easily evolve. We can easily migrate from one system to another system. We all have our preferences. We can all change how it works, how it works for us. And I struggle to sort of see how does the physical workplace deal with that from a human interaction? Absolutely, of course. There are many benefits to people being there in person, but it's something that sort of goes through my head. And then the first part of what you were saying is like from an individual perspective, I think we're all selfishly looking at what we want, but actually works a team sport, right? Mm-hmm. We're part of a team and our responsibility as an individual is to contribute that team so the team can meet the goals for the organization. And that's something that sort of has been very forefront of my mind as I sort of think about other things in, on how t- our team's performing, how I'm performing, and how I want to work in the future, and how other people want to work in the future. And I think that's something that needs to be sort of uh, talked about, thought about, and sort of I think what I think almost the, the best solution that I've heard is almost teams going up with their agreements of how they're going to work in the future, right? It's a little bit like a LinkedIn post I posted yesterday was about, you know, the where and the when, and also then come back with the how and the why, right? So what is the goal for the team? Okay, well, Steve wants to work this way. Somebody else wants to work that way. But actually, what's best for the team? How does the team perform better? And how do we do all that? And then it's a collective. Everyone has the ability to sort of contribute what they want, what their desire is. And then everyone compromises, right? And then when I say compromise, it's it's what fits best for everybody. So everyone buys into what that looks like. And I think there is an individual bias, an individual selfishness, I think, at the moment. Um, and I think that's something over time will be ironed out as I think more and more organizations move to sort of thinking about these team dynamics and team operational mandates or, ma- or manuals, however, whatever words we want to call them, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. The team team thing is something that I'm not completely sold on, to be honest. The reason why is because I've worked in companies that that were global in nature where the team was kind of dispersed. So you didn't really have a choice and the teams were equally effective. But then also working, obviously, in a city where there were teams where the entire team was located locally. And then hearing conversations within the organization around just the disparity and inequity within the teams themselves in terms of, Teams that were allowed to operate in a way that worked best for them, which often included people just working remotely because they they had no choice, versus teams that the manager was completely okay with whatever the individuals decided and everybody was in agreement. And then you had the manager who basically was sort of, you know, uh, leading the charge for their team and saying, you know, I think that the best thing for our team is for people to all be on site Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And then all the, you know, they would walk away and you would hear the grumblings because it was like, we don't have the flexibility to work remotely or however we choose to like other people in, uh, in the organization. I think the key though, is like you said, is, is that, you know, once you've determined as a team, what your objectives are uh, and just even thinking about just previous management experience with managing teams, like inheriting teams that 
you know, people have different skill sets. Maybe they acquire roles and responsibilities that they're not really keen on is understanding, you know, what do they like about their job? What do they dislike about their job? And then aligning to what they particularly like, because that's how you get the best performance out of that person. I see the flexibility aspect as being exactly the same, is, is that if I'm the type of person that I feel most productive when I'm working independently at home, I'm still contributing to the team because that's expected of me. I mean, obviously, that's my one of my critical success factors. But as an individual, this is how I perform best versus someone else who says, hey, I want to be in the office. Well, that's cool. You have a space to go to to the office, but understanding that we're going to be communicating virtually if we need to communicate for that hour or whatever over the course of the day when we need to work together. And I think that's how you maximize productivity amongst people is by really sort of understanding how people actually operate at their best and allowing people to do that so that the company can actually be elevated. It's interesting because throughout this whole pandemic, I mean, you've probably seen it as much as I have about how how much more productive companies were. A lot of companies reported like their best earnings ever in, you know, in history or whatever. And it's like, okay, everybody's working from home. Now, granted, there's there's probably other factors. I'm sure there was things like, you know, people worried about you know, the future of their job. I mean, there was a period where things were very, very unstable. And so you kind of put in more because you were worried about making sure that you still had a job coming out of the pandemic. But I think there's something to be said about the independence factor of how do you determine how to fill your schedule, understanding that you still have a role in terms of contributing to the greater team or the organization as a whole. And there's a certain level of accountability that comes with that, right? That you can't, you can't mandate to somebody come into the office and be accountable. It's you're either accountable or you're not. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a case where most people know what's expected of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially an organization like NASDAQ. We, we all know what we're supposed to do, right? And uh, we know what needs to get done. And, how that gets done, yes, an individual can contribute to that, but I think the team dynamic is what's important in delivering that, right? And yes, I, I can absolutely do my heads down work sitting at home by myself and do that wherever I want to do it, absolutely. However, there are times when the team come together and need to be able to know when the team's going to be available. So there needs to be, I think, core times when the team all knows when they are available and that's why i think these arrangements and agreements and having that that sort of conversation and where people don't feel they have a safety environment to raise concerns and speak openly well that's a reflective of the culture of the team and and i understand it 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 isn't always a best fit for everybody but i think that you know part of a manager's responsibility is to create that safe environment where people can say what they really want to mm-hmm. say without the fear of repercussions or point and finger pointing and so on and so forth. Because what's the point of agreeing something if everyone's not able to speak openly? Because then it's really a, it's not an agreement by yeah. everybody, you know. Um, but I, I do feel that um, the team dynamic is going to be a key factor that needs to be discussed. And that team factor then plays into, okay, you've got your team. How does that team play into the bigger team? team. And if you take what we do within a real estate or workplace teams, then it's like, okay, so we impacted to what we started about before. The employee is the key driver of what the needs are of the office. 
So then how do you do what you need to do, but also have the insight of the ability to see what other people need? How do we observe how employees who are going into the office, how they're working, the way they're working, where they're working? How do we create that? How do we collect that information to better provide those services to those that need it? And I think it almost goes back to that other the other point you were making before, where it's like, okay, so we need to repurpose the office into something. We don't know what that is yet, but I'm sure with the data you're looking at, you can see how space is being used, what type of space is being used, and therefore your clients are going to be able to see, well, actually, this is probably a little bit more of this actually would be better beneficial to the wider group. Um, and I actually heard a conversation the other had a conversation the other day with a with another company. And what they're creating and what they're having great success with is actually creating what I can't remember this exact phrase. And I love that. I just wish I could remember it. But in essence, it's an office in a box, I think is what they called it. Basically, they're creating a box, a large conference room that's been built into an office. So basically, teams can go in there and can work for a couple of days at a time. It's got breakout space. It's got a conference room. It's got individuals. But it's the purpose of it is to allow a team to come together and mm-hmm. sit in a room together to see each other, to be with each other. And I just love that concept as well. Yeah, so it's the whole on-demand on the demand concept. So that's actually interesting. It, it brings me sort of to the next question, which is, you know, when we think about, uh, we talked about sort of the inconsistency in behavior, the, you know, how difficult it is for planning. You know, uh, people who are in the co-working space say, well, the solution is co-working because co-working enables the flexible space, you know, when you need it. So this space on demand sort of idea. Um, what are your thoughts in in that regard? And then I'll, I'll share mine. <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole co-working space. I really am. One of the things that I want to do as I travel, um, moving from place to place, is to go and see different co-working spaces. It's easy for me sitting in a corporate headquarters to basically tell my executive team, yeah, no, this, this co-working um, company is really good or that co-working company is really good. They have the ability to serve our needs in these different locations. But actually what I'm finding is when I go into different locations and I observe, I work in these spaces, actually there are, there are different levels, there are different standards, and there are different um, companies that are ready for enterprise. There are many that are not. And that's okay because they perhaps don't want the the enterprise client. Um, and I'm fascinated by the space. I really, really am. And I think the company who I'm sort of, I think is the best position to take advantage of all this is Regis, just simply because of their reach. I want to say I, IWG is what I mean. It was, it yeah. was part of it, right? They have the ability to do so. I'm also fascinated to see what Mark does with Liquid Space. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he sort of rules out the company and, and Mark who I have a great time for. But actually, I want to go and work in these spaces. I really want to understand what it is what it, and, and why Why are some better than the others. And let me just give you some anecdotal observations. Co-working space in large cities is really good. It's so good. The amenities, the look, the feel, everything is, about it is really, really good. In the suburbs where people live, not so good. It's just not there to fit their needs. It basically is a box where somebody goes in and sits and it's just surrounded and you get your own individual. There are very few that offer teams to come together, but they're not, they're not energizing. They're not exciting. Um, and 
the IWG thing that you have to pay for your coffee, buy a coffee from a, a machine, vending machine, just blows my mind. I just don't understand it. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's a personal thing for me. But I'm, I'm fascinated to see by it all. And again, everywhere I go, I'm actually going to see one later today. I'm just fascinated by how different they are. Who, who, I'm really trying to understand who's their client. Mm-hmm. Because you can look at pictures and actually only when you're in a space and you start talking to the sort of the managers of it. So who is your client? And then they tell you, like, ah, okay, that's why this looks like this, right? Is as a sort of a workplace practitioner responsible for a large organization, you get to know what the look and feel of a NASDAQ office is, what the standards are, what are the attributes that are important. And we sort of measure these in our productivity factors and sort of taking that and looking at through a co-working lens. There are many facets of it that, sort of jive and there are many facets that don't Mm -hmm. at the same time is you have to take a step back and go well what is the purpose of the space because in a corporate environment you're building it specifically for your corporate need and your clientele and for the work that's been done in that office a co-working location sometimes is for a completely different need and i've been to ones that are very tech focused ones that are very legal focused they look different, they feel different, but they serve a very different purpose. And, and I'm fascinated by the space. But I'd uh, love to hear you, what your your insights are, given what you just said. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with the comment that you made about how the in-city sort of co-working spaces are great. They're fully outfitted, you know, easily accessible. They have a lot going for them versus the ones that are in the suburbs that are not nowhere near sort of the level that they could be to attract uh, users that are that do live in the suburbs. I actually have one I keep saying to my husband is like I sh- I should walk over there one day because there's actually one that's within walking distance of my home. It's actually in the woods. Like it's it, there's like a campfire thing outside and it's really cool space, but every time I look at the pictures of it it's like there's nobody there. So like why would I actually go and go and work there, right? Um but you know, if you're a nature lover, it's kind of like okay, maybe it's a place to be. I mean, I kind of live in the midst of nature, so there's really nothing that drives me there because I can just go in my backyard and, and experience that. But I think the thing mm-hmm. about co-working that's fascinating for me is the fact that these locations that, that are in the city it kind of begs the question, well, if you can make, the, you don't want to do the 90 minute commute to go to the office. Why would you do the 90 minute commute to go to a co-working space? So that's kind of the, I think the question that everybody is asking is, is as a company, if I have invested in an office, why would I now move my staff over into a co-working space other than to address the inconsistency and the flexibility requirements that are now emerging, right? So that's kind of the, the thinking that I have around the value of, of co-working. Um, but the other thing, too, is, and this is kind of, again, just given your financial background, is at what point does cost matter? Like right now, location, where are people working from? I think it's more just trying to figure out what is the preference. And I don't think it's as big of a deal when people are working from home because it minimizes the cost. It doesn't cost a company for people to work from home other than the cost of a laptop, maybe a chair, a desk, you know, that kind of thing. But what happens when now suddenly people are starting to explore alternative places to work? So the co-working, the hotels, the cafes, the restaurants to say, well, I don't necessarily have to go to the office. I can go to these other spaces. And now suddenly I'm incurring a cost, which I'm going to expense back to the company because it's on work time. Right. When does that start to matter in an organization? Cost always matters. And, you know, of course. (laughs) 
Um, but it's like there's so many questions in, in in what you just said because I've done a lot of that analysis, right? Um, where evaluating, renewing a lease, or you know, providing people with the ability to either utilize a co-working space full time or on an ad hoc basis. And the analysis that I sort of the conclusions I came to when I did the analysis was if you're simply renewing your lease. It's cheaper to renew your lease than move your team to a co-working location because the co-working location has to build in to their cost the capital expenditure that they had to build out the space, et cetera, et cetera, and their own lease, right? So in that situation, every time it is cheaper to renew. If you are relocating and you're putting capital investment into a corporate office, at that moment, it becomes more economical to move to a co-working space. And that's mm-hmm. just what the numbers have told me. What I will say though is, what a co-working provider sees as an enterprise-ready solution often isn't what the enterprise feels is that corporate office standards. And there usually is a, a, um, a variance in that. When it comes to understanding the cost-benefit analysis of, okay, we have an office where people are not going into and we're incurring a cost in that, Okay, so how do we then actually evaluate moving people to a co-working location or give them access to it? Those are real questions that we're having and we're discussing today with businesses. And I don't know what the answer is. And time will tell whether it is we just provide them with the ability. Here's, you know, IWG membership. Here you go. Global access pass. Just go and use as and when you need. We'll monitor. And if we think there is enough utilization or much demand for it, then we can look at getting something more permanent. There's that option. There are other businesses that are looking and going, okay, so let's exit our corporate office. Let's come together, be it monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly for a longer period of time where we will all come together, we'll create a an experience, we'll come, we'll work for a couple of days, we'll do other things, we'll go for a meal, and it basically be about that human connection. And I think that flexibility, I think there's a huge opportunity for co-working. I think co-working, if they do it correctly, could be the game changer or the it can help organizations win in this situation. At the same time, though, landlords are getting, again, again, I go back to the smart landlords at the beginning, they're creating these spaces. So if you're in a building and a landlord's created this space and you're able to move in there with no capital investment or very little capital investment, you're still not having to exit a building that employees are used to going to. And if you're able to sort of contract some of the space and sort of, you know, lower your costs somewhat, then I think that's a really attractive appeal, I think, for the moment. But I think co-working has a huge opportunity right now. And, you know, you think about the perspective of co-working from, you know, when the, when the pandemic first hit, everyone thought this is going to be the end, where I actually think now they could actually be the game changer. I changer, think. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, too, is as we were saying about, you know, what is it about the co-working spaces and sort of the, you know, the, the audiences that they serve? I mean, I, I worked in a co-working space for three and a half years. I did a, an HR tech I founded my own HR tech startup a couple of years ago and didn't have an office. So I would go down to WeWork and some of the other smaller boutique style co-working spaces. And what I found fascinating coming out of the corporate world. And so working in an office with the same people every day uh, was the people that you bump into. 
and what you learn from people just through the storytelling experiences of like their background. And so to me, when I think about co-working or the value, the real value of co-working, and when you think about why do people leave organizations, mostly because there's no learning opportunity or there's no room for growth, is if you had an opportunity where you could work somewhere, where you could rub shoulders with, you know, someone who works at a company that you admire and just kind of use that opportunity to learn about how did they get into their role or how did they, like, what was their career sort of experience like? I think that would be extremely valuable to people, right? It's not just about producing, producing, innovating, producing, like just kind of, you know, being on that hamster wheel. It's about expanding how you think about the work, the future, your career, sort of your role in this society, in this world, and how you can improve yourself to kind of be the person that you that you want to be, uh, and and you know hopefully make the the world better as 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 part of it, right? So that's really where I see is the difference, right? Is that in an office you don't get that same kind of experience. I'm so glad you said that because it's it's, it's something I completely forgot about. And whenever you were talking, there was. I went, I was flashed back to a specific co-working location I was working in Fort Lauderdale called General Provision. And the community manager is the best community manager I've ever met. She walked me through the space, introduced me to everybody who was there and sparked conversation between people who had no connection. And that was what her job was. And she was loving it. And she was so good. And to your point, the amount of people I met that day, and what she was also telling me is because she does all that work, everybody in that co-working space all work for each other. They all provide services to each other. And to your point, that's the beauty. And that's where that community really comes together. But that's only been that's probably been the one of a few who really have managed it that way. And they're really, really intentional about what that purpose of that co-working space is. As I look at it from an enterprise using that space, there's so many reasons why I would say no, but from a community and connectedness, that's probably the best place I've actually I've visited. Awesome. Well, we're almost at time. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your, about your podcast? No, thank you. And I didn't even mention it in my intro. Man, <laughs> I'm, I'm slipping. I'm slipping. Yeah. So opensourceworkplace.com. Um, yeah, it, it's something that's, again, grew out of my workplace passion. When I got into the workplace 2015, 2016, it was so hard to find information and knowledge and sort of pick up my own skills. So what I want to do with opensourceworkplace.com was to create an opportunity for people to come actually, what are those questions, what is, how to all create content all around that. So I've sort of built that up over a period of time. And I do podcasts. I haven't published a podcast in a long time. I was doing them during the pandemic and they were great because things were changing so fast and just mm-hmm. doing a little short 10 minute, 20 minute um, podcast was really, really useful for me to learn, connect with people and also provide people to give updates and, and what was going on. Um, so yeah, so it's, 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 it's a channel on uh, YouTube, uh, open source workplace. I have podcasts that will be coming back as I, continue my journey and sort of what is the work from anywhere culture how do you do work from anywhere and those are sort of things that i'm looking to explore now and sort of uh, develop and create content around that's great well steve thanks for your time i really enjoyed this conversation any final comments what i will say is i'm fascinated by what's going to happen um i have no idea what's going to happen and i think what we all have to do is keep an open mind and not sort of close ourselves off to biases 
we have to hear alternative views. There's no right answer. No two companies are the same. No two teams are the same. And we have to ask open questions. We have to be open to hearing different answers. And and that's why it's so important to listen to podcasts like yourselves and, and others who are producing content to get different voices, hear different opinions, hear from different people who are operating in different organizations. And again, keep that open mind because there are just so many different ways of where we're all going to be successful. Um, and I just encourage people to keep an open mind. Well, thank you again, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care.